your truth. We thank you that you give it to your church. You teach your church to study your word and to confess your truth back to you and before the world. We pray, Lord, that you would bless us in knowing your truth and you'd bless us in speaking it. And we ask, Father, that in these moments that you would meet us now in the preaching of your gospel, that Christ may be lifted up among us and our hearts may be comforted in him. In Jesus' name, amen. Congregation of Christ, we begin a study of what is simultaneously the most comforting and the most controversial doctrine in the Bible, perhaps. Predestination or election. Predestination has in it that word destination, and we're familiar with that because if we are headed somewhere, if we're going on vacation, we we have a destination in mind. Or sometimes people speak of their destiny, not just where they're going to go on vacation, but their ultimate place of arrival, my destiny. Well, when you put before the word pre, meaning beforehand, it's a word that describes what God does, that he has predetermined the destiny of all. Every frog, giraffe, angel, and human has been predestined. God has determined the ultimate destiny of all things. He has foreordained all things. And a particular kind of predestination is election. Election, and that God has, before the creation of the world, out of the whole sinful mass of humanity, has chosen a people to save, based upon nothing good in them, based only upon God's own love and good pleasure, he has chosen out of all those who are worthy of condemnation, some to be saved in Christ and to be with him eternally. This truth has often been opposed and assaulted and misrepresented and caricatured, but though many people cast a negative glance upon predestination and election, when you open the Bible... They're not presented in some embarrassed or even some negative way, but they become the object of of praise and of comfort. Just listen again to those familiar words of Ephesians chapter 1, where the apostle opens up his letter to the Christians in Ephesus, saying, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as he chose us, there's election, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. Predestination and election are at the the heart of the gospel, and and the heart of the praise of the church to a sovereign God who works salvation from beginning to end, a God who truly saves. Election is the very source of our salvation. And because God is is glorified in this teaching of the Bible, because the church is comforted in it, we, we ought to study these things and, if necessary, defend these things. And that's what our forefathers did 400 years ago at the Synod of Dort. When this heir of Jacob Arminius and his followers, who are called the Arminians, when they were promoting a doctrine against the biblical doctrine of election, and this was causing unrest in the church, delegates were assembled not just from the Netherlands, but throughout the Reformed churches of Europe. It was an international assembly. 
And they worked on these scriptures and these truths and presented what I think is a very pastoral document, a very wise document, a very carefully stated truth about the God of election and what he's done. Now, that doesn't mean that this is easy. It is a mysterious and profound doctrine to be careful with. In fact, if you read through the canons, you'll find these reminders that this must be dealt with carefully and reverently at the right time and place without some inquisitive searching into things that God has not told us about. The late Dr. R.C. Sproul wrote at one point, John Calvin said that the doctrine of predestination is so mysterious that it must be treated with care and humility because it can easily be distorted so as to cast a shadow on the integrity of God. If handled wrongly, the doctrine can make God look like a tyrant who plays with his creatures, who rolls the dice, as it were, with respect to our salvation. Distortions of this sort are many, and if you struggle with the doctrine, you are not alone. On the other hand, he writes, I believe the struggle is worthwhile, because the more we probe this doctrine, the more we come to see the magnificence of God and the sweetness of his grace and mercy. So as we embark on a study of this doctrine of election, let's ask God for humble hearts to carefully and reverently, humbly consider what God says in his word. And this morning we begin slowly as the canons do, stretching out the canvas upon which this glorious doctrine of predestination will be painted and setting forth at the beginning of the canons many things, the context that is important for understanding the truth of election And many things that all Christians would agree with. Let's consider three points. Number one, that God owes no sinner salvation. Number two, that God freely and lovingly gave his son. And number three, that God pardons all who embrace Jesus in faith. Those are three points that we must not forget as we proceed, God willing, in the weeks ahead to go deeper or more specifically on the doctrine of election. First of all, God owes no sinner salvation. There's really no way to begin to think about the doctrine of election without confessing what we say in Article 1, that since all people of sin in Adam are representative and come under the sentence of curse and eternal death, God would have done no one an injustice if it had been his will to leave the entire human race in sin and under the curse and to condemn them on account of their sin. We live in days of entitlement, a feverish entitlement, in which there's constant argument for our rights, our rights. We hear a lot about that. In fact, we live in an increasingly egalitarian society where, where any distinctions at all are, are just by the fact that their distinctions somehow wrong, right? If If anybody has more money than me, they ought to give me some of that money. If anybody has more talent than me, then we need to rewrite the rules so that we're equally talented. And and that's the culture we're living in. And it becomes very difficult for people to, to even contemplate, right, the sovereignty of an eternal God and the fact that we have no rights by ourselves but what God gives to us. Many people feel morally justified to be angry at God even, Because God hasn't given me what I deserve. But the only way to know God is also to know ourselves. 
And the Bible teaches us that we deserve nothing from God. We did not deserve to be created in the first place. We do not deserve to be made in God's image in true righteousness and holiness, to know God and love God and serve God. We do not deserve to be set in the Garden of Eden, a paradise in which to have fellowship with God. We did not deserve God's love and attention when we were perfect. But how much less when we have treacherously betrayed the God who made us, when we and Father Adam rebelled against God, despised God, And when every one of us individually has continued that great tradition of offending God in our sin. Romans 6 proclaims that the wages of sin is death. Employees ask for a fair wage. Union workers, some of us go on strike and will not work anymore until they get a fair wage. But the Bible tells us that If you come to God, the divine paymaster, and you say, I want my fair wage, well, God says the fair wage is death, spiritual death, physical death, eternal death. That's justice for all. The all-knowing God of truth proclaims that to us, that he would have been perfectly just to condemn us all. And so it's important because as we come to the doctrine of election, the the most frequent argument against it is often it's not fair, it's not right, it's not just. But we're called to humble our hearts and to acknowledge that none of us deserve God's mercy. In fact, if anyone deserves grace, then grace is not grace, right? Then it's justice. If God is required to do something for us, then that's justice. But if God does something for us that we don't deserve, that's mercy, that's grace. That's why I've entitled the message this morning, Is Election Unjust or Is Grace Amazing? You see, you can't have it both ways. If we're going to talk about holding God accountable, being just, then we're not talking, are we, about grace. God always gives justice. God gives grace where he pleases. The canons begin, therefore, in Article 1 by quoting three different verses from Romans making clear that we must begin humbly, seated beneath the word of God, listening to what God, the sovereign, says. And so in our thinking about this mysterious and profound and wonderful doctrine of election, we, we may not begin with our own minds, with our own likes and our dislikes. The, the argumentation that says, well, I just feel this way, well, I just can't believe God would do that, those are not the arguments that are stable and sound and trustworthy because we are of limited minds and polluted minds. We have to come to God's word and bow down and say, what does God say? What does the sovereign Lord say? And so we don't engage in philosophical debate independent of scripture, trying to reason according to our own wills. But we want to ask what God says. And we want to know the truth about what man deserves, not just to answer some arguments out there somewhere, but to answer the arguments of our own hearts. Because, brothers and sisters, we have to admit, don't we, that that it's our hearts, too, that often arise up against God in many ways, thinking that we deserve something, I deserve better, or challenging God. The book of Romans reminds us that we are not the judge. We don't pull God down that we might judge him, but the word of God shuts our mouths and brings us down before God who is the righteous judge. And when we see all of this, then we begin to realize that the amazing thing 
in election is not that God saves some and chooses not to save others, but the amazing thing is that God chooses to save anyone at all. When all have offended him, all deserve his wrath, all have come under his condemnation, that the living God should save anyone is amazing. So we begin there. God owes no sinner salvation, but what did God do? God, in love, sent his son to save. Let's notice that secondly. Secondly, God freely and lovingly gave his son. But this is how God showed his love. He sent his only begotten son into the world that, so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. When in the book of John, and there's a little debate whether John 3.16 is Jesus speaking or John writing, but assuming it's John, he's staggered, isn't he, at the wonder of this, that God should so love the world. And the wonder of this, the, the, the staggering thought of this, is not simply that God has loved so many people, and that may be part of it, that the love is not just for the Jews, but it's for the nations. But the word world in the book of John usually often speaks of the world as humanity opposed to God, the world alienated, estranged from God, the world hostile to God and hating God. And the text says, for God so loved that. He loved that world. It's amazing. Amazing. That God should love us. We find it easy, of course, to love people who seem lovable, who are attractive, who are who are easy to love, we find it especially easy to love those who love us. Those who compliment us, those who laugh at our jokes, those who smile at us, those are easy to love. But the Bible says God loved the very ones who offended him. God loved the very ones who at the same time repulsed him. God loved the very contradiction of himself and all of his holiness and righteousness. God loved not his friends, but God loved his enemies who hated him. God loved us. Fountain of salvation is the love of God. Jesus Christ did not come to die on the cross to turn God's heart to love us, but it's God's heart of love that sent his son to die for sinners, to turn them to himself. And if you ask, well, why did God love the world? You won't find anywhere in Scripture that God loved the world because it was lovely or it commended itself to God. No, God loved us because he loved us. That's the answer of the Bible. God loved this broken, sinful, hostile world because it pleased God to love it. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, 1 John 4:10. But God shows his love for us and that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5, 8. And so we have to make much of this, you see, because Satan's scheme is often to lead us to think God doesn't care about us. God is unloving, right? That's what he suggested in the Garden of Eden to Adam and Eve, that God is holding out on you. If you want the really good thing, you've got to eat of this tree. And you see, when it comes to the doctrine of election, Satan is also up to his ugly ways. There have been horribly blasphemous things said against a God who predestines. 
And God is painted out by some as if he is this cruel tyrant who has no love or compassion and takes great delight in casting all these innocent people into hell. As we think about the doctrine of election, we always have to remember the canvas that's being stretched out here before us. This glorious God who so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God is a glorious God. Puritan Thomas Manton said on John 3.16, It shows that God is fuller of mercy and goodness than the sun is of light or the sea of water. God so loved the world. And how did God love the world? Not just by some feeling, but by a glorious, extravagant love God gave his own son, his eternal son, the one with whom he has dwelt in eternity, the eternal son of God, the only begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made, This Son of God, God the Father, loving and delighting in His Son, He gave His Son for this world, this hostile world. An extraordinarily valuable gift. Do you note the contrast then between the object of God's love, the world, and the gift of God's love, His Son? The world is the thing that repulsed God. The Son is the one that delighted God. The world was deserving of condemnation, the Son of, of glory. And instead he gave the Son to come and die for the world. God so loved the world. He gave his Son not just to the incarnation, as someone said, but he gave him to the crucifixion. He gave his blessed feet to be nailed to a bitter cross in our place. He spared not his own Son, Romans 8.32. This is the love of God. The doctrine of election is said in this glorious context of this God, this amazing God, this wonderful God, this most kind and merciful God. Would you give your son for your neighbor's life? Would, would you give your daughter for your worst enemy who hated you and said that she didn't want your help at all? This is what God did to a people whose troubles were all self-inflicted, who despised God, who didn't ask God for help who ran from God. The Princeton theologian B.B. Warfield wrote long ago, search the universe through and through in all its recesses and through all its historical development and you will find no marvel so great, no mystery so unfathomable as this, that the great and good God, whose perfect righteousness flames in indignation at the sight of every iniquity and whose absolute holiness recoils in abhorrence in the presence of iniquity, yet loves this sinful world. Yes, has so loved it that he has given his only begotten son to die for it. No, eternity will not exhaust the wonder of that, will it? God gave his son to save this world, to save it, to really save it. Again, the amazing thing is not that some are saved and not others but that any are saved because it costs the precious blood of God's Son. Article 3 reminds us that with the gift of God's Son, God gave another gift, the preaching of Christ. That God sends where he pleases ambassadors, heralds of this very good news. And that's important because without it, we would never know about Jesus Christ. 
You can't discover the wonder of God's love in Christ through your own human intellect or reason. You can't discover it by by exploring outer space or, or visiting the bottoms of the ocean. You can only know this wonder of God's love in Christ through the proclamation of it. And that's what the sovereign God does. When and where he pleases, he sends his gospel. And by the way, for any who think that God never discriminates in his grace and want to insist that there is no such thing as election as we understand it, and that Jesus simply died for all equally and so forth, well, after they get done saying that, all they do is look around the world and what do they notice? That the preaching of the word has not been distributed equally. In the Old Testament, nations died without ever hearing about the Messiah. And since the coming of Christ, many people have died without ever hearing the name Jesus. God has not sent the preaching of the gospel to all places equally. God, in some form, has shown that he chooses. But we should be all the more humbled in this morning as those who week after week are given the preaching of God's word as those who perhaps had parents or even a long history of great-grandparents and so forth who heard the preaching of the gospel. Why, Lord, did you send the glad tidings to us? Why, Lord, should we be told, should we know? And we could ask ourselves if we're humbled by that this morning. If we in our entitlement culture have begun to look at preaching as our entitlement, maybe I'll come, maybe I won't, no big deal. Or if we come saying, thank you, God, I don't deserve to hear your gospel. But again, you speak it to my soul. God didn't have to save anyone. No one compelled God to save anyone. But God freely and lovingly gave his own beloved son to die for sinners. And finally, in this morning, notice that God will pardon all who embrace Jesus Christ in faith. Article 4 notes that very thing. It says in the canons that God's anger remains on those who do not believe the gospel, but those who do receive it and embrace Jesus the Savior with a true and living faith are delivered from God's anger and destruction and receive the gift of eternal life. One of the misrepresentations of predestination is the allegation that there are people who want to believe on Jesus but are prohibited from doing so because they're not elect. And our confession, based on God's word, says at the very outset, that's nonsense. We refute that. Anyone who believes on the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. Plain and simple. The apostles preached it. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. I may say that freely. I may say that openly. I may say that promiscuously. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus Christ drives away no one who comes to him. So we may say to anyone who's concerned about their sin, anyone who's convicted, turn to Christ, he will receive you. Believe on him, he will deliver you. He is such a savior. God has so loved the world 
And we ought to say that with some urgency because this is really the big distinction in the world, right? People are put into categories all the time, right? People are separated based on race or country of origin, based on economic status, based on whether they cheer for the ducks or the beavers. I mean, people are put in categories all the time, but the main two different categories in the world are believer and unbeliever. And everything hangs on that, doesn't it? Those who believe on Jesus Christ are pardoned of all their sins and have everlasting life with God. And those who refuse to believe are condemned eternally. And there is no third option. At the end of John chapter 3, verse 36, we read, He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Again, in the midst of speaking of predestination and election, we want to openly disown any thought that there's some to whom we cannot bring the gospel or some who cannot be saved or prohibited from believing on Jesus. We want to disown any kind of fatalism. Some people think that if you believe in predestination or election, you don't believe the preaching of the gospel is important. And we say, no, God uses means. This is urgent. Send out the word. Send out the heralds. Call forth the young men to go out as ambassadors for Christ. This is the means by which God saves. And we deny the fatalism that says it doesn't matter how I respond to the gospel because if I'm elect, I'll be saved. If I'm not elect, I won't be saved. Nonsense. The summons of the gospel comes with urgency. Believe on Jesus. And without believing, you will not be saved. But in believing, all that Christ is and all that Christ has done is yours and you are saved. So you see, it's important that as we take up this mysterious and profound doctrine of predestination and election, that we know the context of the Bible. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And as we embrace that gospel, then we learn all the more that, Lord, it was not really that I took hold on you, but you took hold on me. Because for all my unbelief and all my sin, for that I must take full credit. I cannot blame God. But for the faith by which I take hold of the Lord Jesus, for that all the credit goes to God, it is his gift to me. God saves the sinner. And you see then, in salvation, God gets all the glory. But as God is glorified in doing everything, we get all the comfort. Praise be to God. May he grant us hearts to believe it. And may you... Each and every one of us this morning be able to say that this Jesus Christ, this gift of God's great love, is my Savior. Not just someone's Savior, but my Savior. And can you say it this morning? And can you taste it at the Lord's table and say, Jesus died for my sins? If you haven't said that before, if you haven't embraced that Christ, then this is the summons of the gospel. Come and be saved. Confess your sin and fall upon this Savior. He turns away no one who comes to him. Amen. Let's bow in prayer.
Gracious God in heaven, how we thank you for your incomprehensible love. Father, we cannot understand how it is that you gave your own beloved for the likes of us. And we acknowledge, O God, that even in all eternity we'll never fathom the depths of the wonder of this love. But God, how we thank you for it. And we praise you that you've loved us in Christ before the creation of the world. And we pray, God, that you give us hearts to rest in this most perfect Savior and to believe that his sacrifice was fully sufficient for our sins, even as we eat and drink in remembrance of him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I invite you at this